to sing coming out of the uh, Christmas season of just thanking Jesus for not just his birth, but his entire life of why he came, of Jesus, thank you. And even the words to that, the song right before, I missed the name of the song, but it's the first time I've ever heard that song, but my every hope rests on what Christ has done. And that's our hope for this Christmas season and the hope that we can give all those around us that our every hope, every single hope that we have rests on what Christ has done. Not just his birth, not just his life, not just his death, not just his resurrection, not just the ascension, but the entire package of what Christ has done. So I hope that, uh, that you echoed that sentiment, that song of Jesus, thank you. Let me pray to open this up. Father God, we are indeed grateful for your grace, for your mercy in our lives. We're thankful for the breath that we have. Even as we enter this new year of thinking of the new year, of also thinking of how new your mercies are every single morning, not just the beginning of a new year, that the very breath that we have is a reason to give thanks to you. Lord, as we, as we approach this time of, of coming into your word, I pray that you would give us grace and give us wisdom to understand your word, that you would use the power of your word in our lives, that we might be more conformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And for those who are not believers, that they would see the truth of your word and to see their own sin and their need for your son, the perfect Savior. Lord, we thank you in your, in your son's name. Amen. I've recently uh, started reading a lot on history. I, uh, when I was in high school, I really did not care about history. Um, Sorry, parents, and I'm probably encouraging some of your kids, but I didn't care about history because it was what? History. It was gone. And it was really over the past several years that I'm starting to develop a newfound love for studying history. And here recently I've been studying the Navy SEALs and what it takes to become a Navy SEAL. And I already know that I don't have what it takes, but uh, of studying what it takes to become a Navy SEAL. They have this, this program called Drown Proofing or also called BUD, Basic Underwater Demolition. And I think the demolition is in regards to their bodies being demolished as they go through this, this program. And part of it is that their hands are tied together, their feet are tied together, and they're tossed into a, into a pool and told to swim with their hands tied, with their feet tied. And while they're in this nine-foot deep pool, they're told to bob for five minutes, they're told to float for five minutes, then they're told to swim 100 meters in this pool, and then bob for two more minutes, and then do some forward and backward flips while they're in there, and then swim to the bottom of the pool, nine-foot deep pool, and grab something off of the bottom of the pool with their teeth and bring it back to the top, and then return and bob for five more, to, uh, five more minutes. I don't think I'm making it past the first bobbing for five minutes, much less all of that. But they do that. They also carry their boats over their heads, these big old giant rafts. They carry those over there doing all these timed exercises and going through all this rigorous activity. For what? Why do they go through all this? To prepare for battle, to prepare for an impending battle that they would be ready to fight 
in whatever capacity that they would need to as a Navy SEAL. So they would be getting ready for battle. Now, as we enter the new year, we also need to be getting ready for a battle. We need to be getting ready for a spiritual battle. And this is what I want to talk about this morning of getting ready for the battle. Now, this is not a battle with guns, not a battle with swords, not a battle with drown proofing. I'm sure you're thankful of that. But it's, it's, a, it's a different battle. This is a battle for the truth, a battle for the truth of the gospel that is going on today. This battle is happening now. If you think there's not a battle for the truth, I charge you to turn your TV on one evening and listen to what you hear. There is a battle for the truth of the gospel. Many will say that that truth is relative. Your truth may be good. Your truth may be good. My truth may be good. Truth is relative. Truth is not relative. There is how many truths? One single truth, and that is God's truth. You know, I, I, I hope and pray that you don't take for granted the pasture that you have here. I've spent a lot of time sitting down with him, and I know that this is a man who stands for the truth. That this is a man who will die for the truth. Have you thanked him recently for that? That he is a man bold enough to stand for the gospel in a world that hates the gospel and hates the truth. So I hope that you don't take for granted what kind of man of God you have normally standing behind this pulpit that preaches to you week after week. So our title for this morning is, is Get Ready for the Battle. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Because just as with these Navy SEALs going through drown proofing, they're not just thrown into the middle of a battle. They are prepared for battle. They, are, uh, they go through training to prepare for battle. And it's the same with us. So read along as I read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, since we're dropping into the middle of Colossians here, let me, let me catch you up a little bit to what Paul has already done in the first chapter. Through chapter 1, he introduced himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's expressed his gratefulness for the gospel itself. He's exhorted all believers to walk just as Christ has walked. He expressed the centrality of Christ in all things, in all aspects of your life. And he discussed the person and work of Jesus Christ in reconciliation. And then at the end of chapter 1, he identified himself as being a servant of the gospel. And one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter was really to combat the false heresies and the false teachings of so many people during the time um, that he wrote this letter. 
And, and that's something that we're going to look at here in a little bit. But Paul now begins to identify that problem and begins to warn the Colossians. So within this passage, we're going to see four necessities of getting ready for battle. Four necessities for getting ready for battle. First of all, having the right support for battle. Having the right support for battle. We see this in, in verse 1 and, and the first part of verse 2. And Paul demonstrates his, his support for the Colossians by continuing the same thought from, verse, from chapter 1, verse 29. If you look up to verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, the word that Paul uses for striving here is, is the Greek word agonizomai. Now, I normally don't like to use Greek words, but this really helps you understand what the concept behind this is of agonizomai. What's that, what's that sound like? Agonize, yeah. So he's agonizing over the Colossians. He's agonizing over them. That's where we get our word uh, for, for agonize. And he continues the same th- same thought in verse one when he says he has a great struggle. The word there is agona, which is where we get our word agony from. So he's just striving that he he's emphasizing that he has this agony over the Colossians. He has this agony over their lives. And then he's striving over them. And now he is specific, saying that he has agony over, um, over specific areas of their life that he wants to, uh, wants to talk to them about. So Paul adds that his struggle or agony is not only on behalf of the Colossians, but what does he say? He says, also for those who are in Laodicea and those who have not personally seen my face. Now, Laodicea is one of the neighboring cities of Colossae, which is real close by. It's the same, same church that we read about in Revelation 3 that's that's described as the lukewarm church. But notice that Paul identifies uh, these as people who have not seen his face. Now, why is this? Well, Paul never visited this church. He never visited this church. So all the information that he received about the church at Colossae was from Epaphras, from, uh, from a guy that was sent there and sent back to Paul to give him all the information. So he got all of his information about the church from this guy named Epaphras. And yet he stresses that he has gone to great agony over these people who he's never met personally. I thought about that. Wow. To go to have that kind of agony over somebody you've never even met. Think about that in your in your own life. Do you agonize over just think of the people that you know that are believers and, and and you know of what they're going through. Do you agonize over what they're going through? Do you pray for them of what they're going through? Now, Grant, that may be true for a lot of you, that you may be praying and agonizing over those you know. But what about the ones you don't even know at all? And that's what Paul is going to, going to hear, that he's praying and agonizing over other believers that he's never even met. And, and, and I don't think we can really grasp the full weight of agonize of how he's agonizing over them of wanting them to live lives for christ so going back to our necessity of getting ready for the battle of having the right support if there's anybody that i want in my corner it's the apostle paul i I would love to have the apostle paul in my corner praying for me now after identifying his great struggle or agony on behalf of the church paul gives his motivation for this agony beginning in verse 2 he says that their hearts may be encouraged. In other words, Paul's struggle, his agony, um, was for the purpose of encouraging the hearts of the Colossians. 
He was intending to encourage these believers in this area. Now, the basic meaning of this word is to call alongside. In other words, Paul wanted to come alongside of the Colossians and encourage their hearts in the faith and encourage them and and strengthen them because of the battle that was coming. Now, when Paul says that he desires for their hearts to be encouraged or their hearts to be strengthened, he's referring to the inner person, the the seat of decisions, the mind. And and that's what um, the the heart is used all through Scripture uh, to refer to is really the the seat of decisions. Decisions, the inner person, the, uh, that which determines action. You know, and, and for example, in uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, re- referring to that inner person, and then Proverbs four twenty three, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So we see there that the heart is referring to the decisions that you make, and that you're to watch over those. One commentator says the heart is the fulcrum of feeling and faith as well as the mainspring of words and action. Therefore, this this is what Paul wants to be an encouragement in the lives of the Colossians, to be an encouragement to all believers, strengthening their hearts and strengthening their decisions. His motivation in encouraging them was not self-centered. You know, a lot of times we might encourage somebody or give somebody a compliment with some sort of self-motivated um, action in that, that we want something out of it. You know, when your child comes to you and said, Mom, you are the greatest mom in the entire world. What, moms, what are you expecting? All right, what do you want? Because something's behind that. But that's, that's, not Paul's, that's not Paul's reason here. His motivation was not self-centered at all. It was completely to encourage the hearts of the believers and, believers and to strengthen them. Is that, your, is that your desire for others, that you desire to see others strengthened in the faith? And that is what Paul was doing here. Now, simply encouraging people is not enough. The term encourage has really been distorted in our society. The term encourage has, has been synonymous with building up one's self-esteem or, or making someone just feel, feel good about themselves, of, of telling someone, all right, look in, the mirror, look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and people like me. That's, that's not the idea of strengthening and encouraging that Paul has here. It's it's not the idea, and that's why it really needs to go back to the root of what Scripture says about strengthening and encouraging them. That's what Paul is doing here. So, so self self esteem and feeling good about about yourself is not what prepares you for battle. That's never going to prepare you for battle of telling yourself that you're smart enough and people like you. Because realistically, you're probably not smart enough. And if you're living a life for the gospel, is the world going to like you? They're not. They're not going to like you. So what are the tools for battle? Well, Paul continues in verse 2 of giving us the next necessity in getting ready for battle. First, having the right support, then having the right tools for the battle. Having the right tools for the battle. Let's look back at verse 2. It says, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what, having the right tools for the battle. And the first tool that, that Paul describes here is love. 
The first tool is love. Now, I know you've You've all been hounded on love, because I know your pastor just went through a series on, on the seriousness of love, but the, on, so that's good, but the first tool here is love. He says, having been knit together in love. He explains that this, the encouraging or the strengthening as being knit together in love. The idea of being knit together is, is, is really being united together or held together, and the agency of that binding, that holding together, is what? Is love. And we, re- we read in Colossians 3.14, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You know, I, I wish there was a perfect bond in our physical sense, because uh, here recently we had a nativity set that one of the pieces broke, and we really liked that nativity set. And we tried all kinds of glues that are out there, super glue, hot glue, um, mega glue, you name it. We tried them all, and nothing seemed to put these two pieces together. Isn't it great in the body of Christ that we have a perfect bond of unity, a perfect bond that can bring so many people from so many different areas together in a perfect bond, and that is love. How is it that we have this love? In 1 John 3.16, John writes, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So this is what Paul writes, that, that we, we have been knitted together. In other words, if you're a believer, you've already been knitted together with every other believer across the time of history. That you've been knitted together because of Christ's love for us. And this, it goes on, though, and says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And this is what Paul is saying that he's done. He has laid down his life for the Colossians. He has laid down his life for Christ on, on behalf of the Colossians, and not even just the Colossians, as he said earlier, but on behalf of all of those who he doesn't even know, he's never even met, that he's laid down his life all because of love through Christ. So the first tool for the, for the right tool for battle is love. The second tool is understanding. Paul writes that not only are believers knit together in love, but they are also knit together attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of of understanding. Now, to better to better understand this, to comprehend this idea, let's look at this this phrase in reverse order. Uh, first of all, what is Paul referring to when he mentions understanding? Well, this understanding refers to the application of biblical teaching, the application of biblical teaching to your life. It refers to not only hearing the word of God, but applying it to your life. This understanding can only come from one place, and that place is God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, an an unbeliever cannot accept the things of, of God. Why? Because they do not have the power of the Holy Spirit. They are an unbeliever, so they cannot accept the things of God. They cannot apply the everyday truth of God's word to their life. So, uh, so what is the full assurance of understanding, as Paul says in Colossians? Well, the full, if, only, if only a believer can understand and apply the, the truth of God's, of God's word, then the full assurance of understanding is really the full assurance of your salvation, of having a full assurance of your salvation. Can you, can you apply the word of God to your life? 
Can you right now apply the word of God to your life? If you're a believer, what's the answer? Yes. If you are an unbeliever, there's only, there's only one truth of the word of God that you can apply. And what is that? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the only truth that you can apply to your life. You can become a Pharisee and go through the motions and look like you're doing the right thing, but the only truth that you can truly apply to your life is to repent and believe on him. So are you truly sure of your salvation in Jesus Christ? Are you truly sure that if, if you died right now, that you would spend eternity with Christ? This is a question that arises time and time again by so many people. Can I really be sure of my salvation? I think I've received that question about 12 times now in the past year from our youth group at, uh, back at my church. Of Can I really be sure of my salvation? Shouldn't I just continually doubt my salvation? Well, if, you, if, you're, if you're not sure of your salvation, then you're not really ready for the battle. So can you be sure of your salvation? Listen to 1 John 5, 11 to 13. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Is it possible to have a full assurance of your salvation? Yes. And that's why God has given us his perfect word so that we can be sure of our salvation. As a believer, you can have the full assurance of salvation and thus have the full assurance of understanding, or in other words, the full ability to apply the word of God to your life. So, so what then is the wealth, looking back to our verse, what is the wealth that comes from the full understanding, the full assurance of understanding? We're really, first and foremost, living a life for Christ. That is the full wealth of a full understanding of, of, of God's word, of living a life for Christ, of being used by God as a servant of the gospel. And just thinking of that, you know, I'm amazed a lot of times that God does use me. I know my sin, and I know that I should not be used at all for the furtherance of the gospel in the kingdom of God. I know my own sin. But yet God still uses me as a tool for his kingdom, as a tool for his gospel. So the wealth of, of a full assurance of understanding is, is also being used by God as a servant of the gospel, of having, even as we sung earlier, of having the hope of eternal life. That is a great wealth of the full assurance of understanding, of having the hope of eternal life, of being heirs to the kingdom of God. You know, for those of you who went to summer camp, uh, you, you heard about this big time of, of being heirs to the kingdom of God is just so much more than just being saved. I mean, not only do I get to go to heaven, but I get to be a co-heir with Christ, the Son of God. And if that's not a wealth of the full assurance of understanding, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. The list could go on and on of describing the wealth that we have as believers. Without the full assurance of understanding, you cannot enjoy the full grace of God and be ready for the battle. 
Now, notice that Paul adds one more tool, and that tool is knowledge. He writes, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul emphasizes here that the knitting together is not only in love and not only attains an assurance of understanding, but also results in a true knowledge. Paul, Paul says this really to attack this, this supposed superior knowledge of that of the Gnostics. You know, I, I mentioned in the, in the beginning that one of the reasons Paul wrote Colossians was to attack some false heresies that was going around. And one of those heresies was that people was proclaiming that you had to have this special select knowledge that would lead you to salvation, that, that only a select group, maybe this group on this side over here would get it, but the rest of y'all are just, you don't get it at all, sorry. It's only this small, select group that, that gets that knowledge. And this was going around during the time that Paul wrote this letter. And so that's why he's, he's giving a, a sequence here of events that this is not a self-acquired knowledge. That this is a, a knowledge that comes from one person and one place. And that's, and that's God through his word. And, and, that's, and that's where it, it comes from. It does not come through some, some self-acquired um, attaining of it. So Paul emphasizes the only true knowledge is knowledge from God. And what is this true knowledge? Paul writes that it is the, a true knowledge of the mystery of God. Now, this, this is the mystery that, look back up in verse 26. Paul mentions it back in 26 of chapter 1 as well. 26, he says, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, there are many aspects of this mystery we can examine, but ultimately, this mystery is summed up in one word. The mystery that has been gone through the whole ages is summed up in one single word, and that word, Christ. The entire mystery is summed up in Christ. And that's what we just got done celebrating, of celebrating Christmas. The, the entire mystery that God has had through the ages was summed up in God intervening and sending his son, of, have, of sending Christ. Christ is the revelation of the mystery of God. Now, notice that Paul adds that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. In other words, with Christ, the full treasure chest is open to all believers. He doesn't just open the treasure chest and say, okay, here's a coin for you, here's a coin for you, here's a, a, a gold bowl for you. He opens the whole chest and said, here's my kingdom, it's for you. If you have faith in, in Jesus Christ, the entire treasure chest is open to you. And that's, and that's what Paul says here. People, people are in search of, of knowledge and wisdom through all different methods, even today, that they're, they're going through labyrinths and carrying candles and doing all these different things to try to attain a knowledge of God. And it's crazy because we have the perfect word of God that gives us all the knowledge we need, and we carry it around with us every day. The, the, all the knowledge and all the wisdom can only be found in Christ and in his word. Not only is the actual wisdom and knowledge found in Christ, but also all the treasures associated with Christ. This is the ultimate treasure. So, what are the tools necessary for battle? Love, understanding, and knowledge. Love, understanding, and knowledge. And where do all three of those tools come from? 
Walmart? No. Target? No. They come from one place, from God, from the Word of God, from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That is where they all come from. So we've seen that we need to have the right support for the battle. We've seen we need the right tools for the battle. And now the third necessity in getting ready for the battle is having the right warning for the battle. Having the right warning for the battle. You know, if, if, if a battle is about to come to you, if you were to walk out that door and, and a, a mob of 50 people was going to tackle you, wouldn't you like to know that they were going to tackle you before you walked out that door? Yes. You, you want to have that warning. Well, we have the warning. Listen, listen to Paul in verse 4. He says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Now, what is the this that he's talking about that I say this? Really the whole letter. Really, the entire letter of what he's uh, of what he said about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he says all of this so that no one will delude you. And, and, that, and that's the purpose. So that, you know, just a, a little glimpse here. Whenever you see a so that in Scripture, that's a good thing, because God is giving you a purpose of what he's just said or what he's about to say. So whenever you see a so that, it's good to highlight it, mark it, bold it, put arrows on it, whatever. So you know this is the purpose that God is giving you. He says he's saying this so that no one will delude you. He wants to warn them of the battle. He wants them to be ready for the battle that is coming. And who is the, who is the enemy in this battle? He says, no one. I say this that no one will delude you. Well, no one is not the enemy. Um, so what, is he, what does he mean by no one? Well, first of all, it indicates that there are some who will come and try to delude the Colossians. There are some who will try to come and delude you from the truth, who will try to come and deceive you in the truth. It indicates that there is not any person in particular, but rather simply that someone will come and try to delude them. There are false teachers who will try to delude the Colossians. There's false teachers today who will try to delude you. This is true, of the, true in the day of Paul and true today. This is true in churches across America that there are people drawing so many deceived people away from the truth that these people are proclaiming what they call a gospel and it is so contrary to what we read in the pages of scripture that it is it cannot be considered the gospel and they are drawing them away from the gospel and what does paul say that should happen to anybody who preaches a gospel contrary to what he preaches they are to be what accursed and that's going on still today that people are drawing people away from the truth of the gospel. And this is the battle. This is the battle for the truth of the gospel that's going on today. Now, Paul presents the uh, next in the passage, he presents the effect of the enemies and the manner of the enemies uh, uh, that they use in this battle. The effect of the enemies, he says that they will delude them or or deceive them or distort them. This is the same word that that uh, James uses in in chapter one, verse 22 of prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. In other words, what what James was saying there was that by by merely hearing the word and not doing the word, you deceive yourself in saying that, hey, I'm a believer. and I'm okay because I heard the word. Well, if I heard um the word civil engineer before I went to before I went to engineering school. Does that make me a civil engineer just because, hey, you're going to be a civil engineer. Oh, great. I don't need to go to school. I don't need to do anything. But don't drive on the bridges that I might build because um, I need to be trained to do that. 
So it, it's more than just hearing, it's doing, uh, as, as James says there. So within the context of Colossians, these false teachers attempt to deceive others with false beliefs about Christ. This is what I mentioned again earlier, that, that Paul was attacking all of these false teachings that was going on. They attempted to declare that uh, to them that Christ is not sufficient for salvation. And, and, and this was going on all through, the time, all through the time because of the Jews that was there on that, that would, some of them would say, look, yeah, you need to believe in Christ, but you also need to keep the Sabbath. You need to keep the, the laws here. You need to keep the Levitical law. You need to do all these things. No, it is Christ. Salvation is Christ. So they, they attempt to add other things besides Christ. They attempt to declare to them this special knowledge necessary for salvation. They attempt to declare that Jesus was simply an angelic being, that he was not God. And if you think that was only back then, it's going on now. There are organizations that are still proclaiming today that Jesus is not God. If Jesus is not God, do we have salvation? No. It's only because he was perfect and he is God that we have salvation. This kind of deception is still going on today. So what is the effect of these enemies? The effect is that they will deceive um, with, uh, with false beliefs. Now, the manner they use, it says, with persuasive argument. Now, this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament of persuasive argument. Listen to how Paul, Paul does some similar wording in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. You know, Paul says he doesn't use persuasive speech. Why? Because, as it says there, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So he says he will not use the persuasiveness of speech. You know, perhaps you've ever bought a used car. I've bought a used car. And when I went to the used car lot, this person tried to convince me that this was the only car that I could ever have, that this car was made for me, that, that no other car would, would please me and satisfy me. I had to have this car. Yeah, it was more money than I needed than I could pay, but this was the car for me. This, this persuasiveness of speech of, you've got to have this car. That's what's being used by, by some preachers, even the time of, of Paul here, that they're using persuasiveness of speech in trying to deceive Others, and this is the, this is the manner that we see even in TV evangelists. If you've turned on the TV, that you've heard some of this persuasiveness of speech, or maybe they try to manipulate you into making a, a false decision for Christ. Maybe, maybe they maybe they try to um, promise you a great life of health, wealth, and what prosperity. Maybe they maybe they promise you that. Maybe they they, they promise that. All right. If you send me that last dollar bill in your wallet, I know it's the last one you got, but send it to me and God's going to bless you. How many of you are like, oh, wow, yeah, I could do that. And then he says, and I know if you had trouble this Christmas season and you couldn't pay all your bills, then I'm talking to you and you need to send that last bill. And what are you like? Hey, that's me. 
I had trouble this Christmas. Well, he's just generalized every single person across America because everybody's probably spending too much money this Christmas. So he's persuaded you into seeing that last, last dollar you have and, and, to, and to use this persuasiveness of speech to draw you away from the gospel. The others say that, that God did not create man. This is being taught in our school systems right now that what cre- what, how did man come about? They evolved from this little pile of mud. And I'm supposed to believe that rather than believe the word of God? And this is what our youth are being taught today in so many schools and being deceived from the word of God. You know, Satan is crafty. He's working in our lives. He's working. He's working in our homes. He's working in our jobs. He's working in this world. He's working in the White House. He's working everywhere to draw us away from the truth of the gospel because he doesn't want us to believe the truth. So if you do not believe that you are in a battle for the truth, I plead you to examine your life. Examine how you are living. We are in a war for the truth. We are fighting for the truth with the most perfect truth. Because this is the power. This word is the power. Not me, not Dave Harrell, not Dave Hoffman, none of us can do anything without the power of the Word of God. This is the power that fights truth, and this is what we're fighting for, the power of the truth. So Paul ends with the last necessity in getting ready for the battle in verse 5, of having the right stance for the Bible, or for the battle. Having the right stance for the battle. He writes, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So Paul again here, first of all, reassures his support for the Colossians by declaring that even though he's not present with them, he is there in spirit. This is basically what Paul has been doing all through the letter of, of emphasizing to the Colossians that I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. I'm not there, but I'm praying for you. I am there in spirit. How can you encourage someone that you cannot be with physically? You pray for them. You know, Paul didn't have a cell phone. He couldn't call up the Colossians and say, hey, what's up? I'm praying for you. He couldn't text them. He couldn't make his Facebook status that he's praying for the Colossians. He had none of those avenues to do that. All he could do was pray for the Colossians. And that's what he continued to express that he was doing. And he also expresses his joy over them. And why does he have this joy? He rejoices in seeing their readiness for battle. He rejoices in seeing their faith. Notice in the passage that Paul presents two characteristics for the stance for the battle. Two characteristics for the right stance. First of all, he says good discipline. That they have good discipline. Or, or New King James Version says good order. You know, this, is a, this is a military term that Paul uses here of, of, of having order in like an inspection line. If you've ever seen military, how they line up and the general or captain or whoever comes through and gives an inspection to make sure that everything is in order. And, and this is the concept that Paul uses here of making sure that everything is in order. You know, speaking on gifts, Paul, Paul uses a similar concept. He says in 1 Corinthians 14:40. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner, using the same concept, excuse me, as he uses in that verse. In other words, Paul tells the Colossians that he rejoices in seeing how ordered and how disciplined their faith is, 
even though the battle has already begun, their line has remained in good order and their faith has remained in good order. So he's, he's expressing joy in that. And now the second characteristic is also a military term. It is stability, the stability or steadfastness of their faith. You know, the term is used to, to speak of how solid a formation or military group is. You know, when I was in high school, I was in the marching band, and we had to keep these solid formations going around the field in different directions. Well, in theory, we were supposed to keep those formations, but the idea was to keep these formations going around the, around the field and keep them solid and, and keep them stable. And that's the idea that, that Paul has here of having a stable form in the body of Christ, of having a, a stable, um, a stable formation. You know, Paul rejoices to see that the believers in Colossae have not been pulled away by false teachers. They've not been pu- pulled away by all these false teachings going, going on during this, during this time. Their faith has held strong. Their formation has, has remained solid and stable. You know, these are the two characteristics for our own faith if we're going to be ready for battle. The two, the two characteristics he gives here of of um, being in order and being steady are the same for us. We have to hold to the line of truth and be steady in our faith. Those two characteristics that you have to be, that you have to hold to the line of truth and be steady in your faith to be ready for the battle, to be ready for the battle that is going to come and is already here. You know, while rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah, we read in Nehemiah 4.18 that as for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. When we're in battle for the truth, we've got to have our sword. What's our sword? The Word of God. We've got to have it. Now, can we, can we always carry it? Well, probably can. Um, but but how, how do we carry the Word of God? By memorizing Scripture, by keeping it, by hiding God's Word in our heart that we might not sin against God. By memorizing Scripture, by carrying the Bible, by always being ready to give a defense for the hope that we have, using his word. So just like those, the soldiers that under Nehemiah had to have their sword at all times, we need to have our sword ready at all times, knowing that the, that the enemy is prowling around like a lion, ready to devour us. And we need to have this sword ready to fight that enemy, because it is going on today of fighting for the truth. Thinking about the Navy SEALs again, there's, there's many dropouts from the Navy SEALs. People are dropping out left and right from the Navy SEALs. Why? They couldn't handle it. I'd probably be one of them. I'd probably, um, I'd probably drop out after the first or second bob under the water. I couldn't do it. But there's so many dropouts because they couldn't handle it. Is this the same with you? If you are a believer, can you handle it? You can. Why? Because you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And that power of the Holy Spirit cannot fail. It cannot fail. So you have the power. There is no dropouts in this, in this battle for the truth, in this war against truth. There are no dropouts. You can handle it from the, because of the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in you because of your faith in Christ. Now, if you are not a believer, then you're probably on the wrong side of that battle already. And you need to drop out of that battle because you are on the wrong side of the battle. So are you ready for the battle, for the battle on truth? You know, it's not just captains and generals 
that fight the war. It's you. Because a lot of you may say, yeah, my pastor fights for the truth. You know, Pastor Harold, he fights for the truth, and I love it that he does that. And that, and that does it for me. No, it's you. In, in your homes, in your families, at school, at work, you are in this battle to fight for the truth of God's word. Allow me to end with a quote by Spurgeon. Spurgeon writes, Where truth is, the lie must flee. Or if it abideth, there must be a stern conflict. For the truth cannot and will not lower its standard. And the lie must be trodden underfoot. If you follow Christ... You shall have all the dogs of the world yelping at your heels. That is the battle today. If you are standing for the truth, then all the dogs of the world that hate the truth of God will be yelping at your heels and fighting you against that truth. Are you ready for the battle for the truth? Let's pray. Lord God, we are indeed so thankful that the power resides in you. That you are the power against this battle of truth. That you use us as tools in this battle. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be ready for this battle, that we would continue to love and desire your word in order to prepare us for battle, knowing that as believers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is how you will prepare us, is through the word of God. And I pray that you would help us to do that, that we would be ready, and that those who are not believers, who cannot be ready for the battle, that you would use the power of your word in their lives, that they would see that they are on the wrong side of this battle for truth, that there is one truth, and that one truth you have given us in the perfect revelation of your word, that we have the privilege of studying and reading. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.